It's Monday, February 1st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Happy Monday. What's Hey-o. happening? Uh, as, as we were just chatting about before we started taping, it's February 1st. Fingers crossed, <laughs> this is a better month for the stock market and investors than January was. Although, to your point, Jason. You know, there's some yeah. values to be had that were not there a month ago. Handing you know, out I, stocks on Valentine's Day. This I month. look back at 2006, <laughs> seven, and eight, and I mean, while those were really tough times to be an investor, I mean, I really do feel like that was one of the most valuable points in time for any investor because if you if you could make it through that, if you were able to kind of get through that, control your emotions, and not freak out. I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. You can dig back and, and remember that experience. It, it, it will definitely make you a better investor. We've got some earnings to get to. We've got the first trillion dollar company to get to. And of course, we're going to talk about the Super Bowl. We have to. But yeah, let's start sure. with McCormick. Fourth quarter profits and revenue higher than expected for the spice maker. Um, last week, there were so many companies reporting earnings that we weren't able to get to all of them. McCormick is one of them. They reported late last week. The last 12 months have not been great for the market in general, but this stock just keeps on chugging. Yeah, it really does. I mean, if you look back at, I think really on any timeline, 10 years, five years, three, two, one, year to date, it seems like no matter what the time period, it's a good time to be an investor in this business. And I think that's for a number of different reasons. Um, I mean, first and foremost, it is just, it's one of those high quality businesses. You know, like one of the things we look for in MDP and million dollar portfolio, one of the mandates we have is to find the best ideas in all of our foolish universe and really the focus is on the highest quality businesses out there you know we have kind of a checklist that we look through and and McCormick is one of those that I think would you know would certainly chime in on a lot of those a lot of those qualities I mean it's it's reliable it's got a brand that's very recognizable it's ubiquitous you know you go to the grocery store and you you don't even really think about going to the spice aisle but you're going there no matter what because you got to get something if you cook it all in McCormick is the one that makes up virtually the entire aisle, and and they've they've had that they've enjoyed that for so long. Um, in you know we look at it from that perspective as as a consumer as a shopper, but then if you look at this business from you know it's the industrial side. I mean they're they're a supplier to a lot of the big names out there. Around forty percent of their sales come from big industrial customers like General Mills, Yum Brands, uh, PepsiCo, things like that. I mean I'll never forget. And I know I've, I've referred to this before, but it always just it, it stuck in my mind. We went and toured the McCormick Spice Factory the, the, up here in in uh, Hunt Valley, um, and they were taking us through like their their sort of secret side of the of the wing there, where they were making spices for different restaurants and whatnot. They weren't going to release any names, but they were they were kind of like, "Yep, yeah, well, this is one place where we're working on uh, you know some some." Different spices and ideas for well, we're not going to really you know name it, but it's a big purveyor of chicken, um, you know something about a secret recipe. <laughs> it was like, all right, well, I, I kind of see where you're going there. Um, these guys just have it seems like a, you know a, a part of, of everything when it comes to that, and and then it's it's global, you know, to boot. And so even even though they make about half their money overseas, and they're gonna witness currency uh, you know headwinds in times like these when the dollar is stronger. That really is okay. I mean, the 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 shares trade. I think for a bit of a of a higher than normal multiple, because it's a quality business, because it's so reliable, because it's so well run. And I don't think that changes anytime soon. Well, it's a good reminder with McCormick that for 
a lot of businesses that we talk about on this show, they are consumer-facing and they are recognizable to the average person. But that does not mean that the business is wholeheartedly consumer-facing. Yeah. Last week, we talked about Johnson & Johnson. Probably most everyone listening right now has some Johnson & Johnson product in their home. But when you look at the business of Johnson & Johnson, that is a fraction. That's like 10-15% of their business or something mm-hmm. like that. And so, when you think about McCormick, it's like, oh, yeah, I know McCormick. I go to the grocery store. And it's like, yeah, there's actually a whole other side to the business. And that's why you got to look a little deeper. Yeah, and I mean, I tell you, after after coming away from the from from McCormick HQ, and that, that was five years ago, we went and, and checked that out. I mean, you just you wouldn't think about it. I mean, this was this was more chemistry than than just like food. I mean, they they were doing all sorts of different things in there um, that that just make you think, wow, they've invested a lot in this business. There's a reason why they they own the share of the market that they do and they continue to make little bolt-on acquisitions to gain more global share and and, and uh, you know that certainly played out very well in the Asia Pacific uh, for them and and again I mean I don't see anything really displacing that or disrupting that anytime soon Questar the natural gas producer is being bought by Dominion Resources for just north of four billion dollars and Taylor we said to expect mergers and acquisitions in the energy space, mm-hmm. and certainly we've got one today. Yeah, big one, up over twenty percent. Um, last year, though, utilities like Duke and Southern Code did something very similar to this. They bought a natural gas distribution company. Um, you got Duke buying Piedmont Natural Gas and Southern Co. buying AGL Resources for eight billion dollars, so almost twice the size of this deal. But I think you see. The long-term demand for natural gas and utilities may be worrying about energy efficiency and the reduced demand for power overall here in the United States. So, kind of hedging their bets um, on the distribution side as natural gas grows in importance um, because states and the federal government are beginning to implement more and more environmental regulations to demand cleaner power. Natural gas seems to be that favored source, at least on a broad scale. Solar and wind are growing, but natural gas is readily available um, for decades to come, if it's to believe what we have under the ground in the United States. Um, and then you have Dominion has a Dominion Midstream, which is their MLP. They drop down assets to this to continue to grow cash flow, so they can pay the distributions to their Dominion Midstream unit holders. And um, when you look at Questar, there's a lot of assets here that Dominion could drop down over time. Um, without having to give up some of the more valuable assets that they currently have um, right away. So, I think you're looking at a little over $400 million in EBITDA assets that they can drop down to continue that cash flow generation at Dominion Midstream. Um, kind of threw me for a loop at first, because you look at Dominion, headquartered here in Richmond, um, and then Questar, considered the hub of the Rockies uh, for natural gas distribution and transmission. Um, so, it's a different geographic Expansion, um, but I think I saw that Questar distributes about 25% of California's natural gas. So big markets. I was going to say, is that a big yeah, market? Big <laughs> markets that they're dealing with. Uh, so it looks to be a pretty pretty strong move, diversifying not only um, from a revenue source but also geographically, and and providing those drop down assets could be a long term gain. Two quick questions. Yes. Dominion shares down just a little bit, not much, one and a half percent or or so earlier today. 
did they pay a little too much, or is that people just nitpicking? So I think uh, it's a combination of um, maybe they paid a little bit too much, but they also released earnings and they, they didn't perform as well as maybe some people were expecting. So I think that that kind of muted maybe some of the deals um, luster there. And second question is, who's next on the list? Who's if if you're looking at whether it's nat- natural gas producers or others, and you're thinking, eh, this is a pretty good size. Mm-hmm. Again, Questar, good size business. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, got snapped up by Dominion. Mm-hmm. Who else is is maybe on the list if if we're looking to bet on who's going to be acquired in the next six to twelve months? Acquisitions, I'm not sure. Like I would imagine, some producers of oil and natural gas would have to start getting snapped up. You're seeing a lot of some small players. Uh, uh, Halcone, I think, just suspended their preferred dividends recently. Sandridge is now trading over the counter. So there's a lot of these once big names, maybe not huge companies, but big names in the oil and natural gas producing space are are really they're on they're on the teetering edge of, uh, of going belly up. So I think that you're probably going to start to see some some uh, acquisitions in that space because it can't be too much longer before somebody just files. And uh, either bankruptcy or acquisition is, is the way out, I think. Fourth quarter profits and revenue for Sherwin-Williams came in higher than expected. They finished out 2015 pretty strongly, mm-hmm. Jason, but the guidance for 2016 was Tepid. Another yeah. company that's not only consumer facing, but you, like I only thought that they made consumer paints. Sure. Yeah, don't. and I mean it, they they've again. I mean I think Sherwin Williams is is uh, you know a, a global operation more or less. I mean it is it is a very consumer facing brand. Something that most of us just kind of think, oh yeah, Sherwin Williams paint. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean they're they're playing a role in in you know what contractors are using. I mean it's it's a very very sort of broad array of offerings they have in their catalog or their portfolio of, of brands there. And I mean yeah, to your point, you know it's kind of like a tale of two companies with these guys because on the one hand, top line sales grew just a little over a percent for for the company over the fourth quarter. But then you look at the bottom line, and earnings per share grew over fifty percent, and and I think that's what's always really impressed me with these guys. This is a business that I put on the put on the watch list in MDP a couple of months ago. Um, it's a recommendation in Stock Advisor, and it's one that you know, I mean, you talk about things that are really boring, and you'd rather watch paint dry, and 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 you know, that's all funny, I guess. But I mean, you know, there there's really something to these paint companies. Like they are doing something pretty impressive and I think there's a reason why Berkshire Hathaway owns Benjamin Moore, right? That's another one of those kind of you don't even think about a business, but man, everybody's going to have to paint something at some point, good times and bad. And so when you know, if housing is having a a hard time, then paint's a very cheap sort of way to sort of upgrade. If if housing is good and houses are flipping, then I mean, you know, you got to paint things when you're selling them and so they do a really good job of just keeping sales going. And again, they've done an even better job of really bringing um, you know, bringing down the results to the bottom line. They buy back shares, uh, they pay a dividend. You know, and if you look at the, I think to me, what really is interesting is the market opportunity that's available, because it's the paint stores group that's the big money maker for the company that makes about seventy percent of the overall sales for the company. That's you know, when you and I go in and buy paint for our house. Um, but you know, according to Ibis World, the, the paint stores industry is going to bring in around twelve billion dollars. Brought in about twelve billion dollars in revenue in two thousand and fifteen domestically here. But Sherwin Williams owns more than fifty percent of that, like fifty six percent of it, and that's actually growing. So they they are the market share leader, you know, by far. 
And and again, that's because they have this big, broad array of offerings in their portfolio. It's not just Sherwin-Williams, right? It's Dutch Boy and all these other Glidden, I think, is in there. So, all of these names that you're very familiar with. Um, and again, I mean, if you're a shareholder of this business over the past 10, 5 years, you look at you look at it, the timeline, uh, you've probably done pretty well. And I mean, really, the only thing that's kind of got us on the fence right now in MDP is just the valuation, because we feel like the opportunity is there, but but really, it is a matter of trying to figure out sort of the best, uh, you know, getting getting sort of the best bang for your buck there. So we, we'd like to see the price come back down a little bit, but uh, quality businesses rarely go on sale. You talked about the the net income rising so fast. I looked at the margins. I mean, their twelve last twelve months is about four and a half percent above traditional nine of the last nine years average for gross margin. So yeah. that flowed right down through to net income. Yeah, and you know the, the commodity cycle right now is helping them out, but. That can't be the whole reason why they're expanding margins like that. No, and that's a very good point. I'm glad you brought that up because you know, as a as a producer and seller, you know, yeah, they are exposed to that commodity mm-hmm. risk. Or at this point, man, it's a tailwind, mm-hmm. right? But they do possess some pricing power because yep. it is a quality product. And I mean, as as a homeowner, I mean, I've tried a number of different paints, and I, I mean, I will say, like, there is something to using a good quality paint. It's just it's better. And and Sherwin Williams definitely has that, so they definitely have a little pricing power they can exercise when when costs get out of control, and in times like these when they see some of those commodity tailwinds, mm-hmm. uh, definitely flows through that margin yeah. line for them. That's one of those things you learn as you get older that there are certain things <laughs> just pay up. Yeah, just right. Yeah. You only just, do it once. Yeah. Just pay for quality right. paint. That if is, if you're a parent, pay up for the Pampers. Yeah, they're more expensive, but just just do that. Yeah, just. <laughs> Just pay up for the quality paint. It's a very good point. We could probably, uh, you know, take that advice as investors too, right? Yeah, right. Sometimes, uh, you know, just stocks pay. are cheap for a reason. Just pay a few more bucks for the quality company, and 10, 15, 20 years down the road, your your portfolio will be thanking you. <laughs> Alphabet reports after the market closes today, and here's a fun stat because we talk about Apple being the largest company in the public markets by market cap, and it is. But with the growth of Alphabet, the parent company of Google, and the decline over time of Apple, Apple's market cap right now is just 0.2% higher than Alphabet's. Apple's around $531 billion, Alphabet 520. Microsoft, with the growth they've had the last couple of years, is third, $433 billion. And Facebook has just overtaken ExxonMobil as fourth largest, $324 billion. Who gets to a trillion first, Taylor? I'm gonna go with Google. And it doesn't. And by the way, it doesn't have to be one of those five. <clears throat> sure. Yeah. Okay. But that's probably the way to bet. Yeah, they got sure. a decent head start. I'm gonna go with Google. I think that they just have too much going on. Um, Apple's trying to diversify outside of just the phones and the tablets and the watches. Um, at least they they've hinted that the car or virtual reality or whatever. But Google is leaps and bounds ahead of them in that and life sciences and a whole host of other things. Connected homes. They have the the Nest portfolio. So I I, I put my faith in Google to get there first. Jason, not yeah, anytime quickly. I don't imagine. But it's a really good. I know for a while we thought it would be Apple. I think Apple's really run into a buzzsaw here and trying to figure out a way to grow that business. Beyond the iPhone, and you know your Google argument, it's a bigger company now. I, I can't help but think this is sort of the the Facebook generation. You know, this is this next decade is going to be the Facebook decade versus the the Google decade, which you know I would say was was the previous. Um, my my dark horse. I mean, I, I God, I I can't eliminate Amazon from this conversation. I mean, yeah, the thing about Amazon is. 
you know, it, it is just all of these repeat purchases. I mean, they are just overtaking that e-commerce space, which is so, so critical and so big and so global and so much opportunity there. And then you add on that the Amazon Web Services side of the business, and and who knows what else. But I think any which way you look at it, you know, you have Facebook. Google and Amazon, all founder-led businesses, still relatively young founders. Facebook a little more so. Um, I'd probably put my money on Facebook over Google, but Amazon's my dark horse. Where are they at uh, right now? What's that? Amazon market cap two seventy-one. Yeah, just a little bit under three hundred. And I think um, you know now it's you know again. I mean Facebook. Facebook's proven very, very, uh, very good at at. Acquiring mm-hmm. properties, whatever it may be, and then and then giving them a good home, you know they they've yet to really been able to sort of prove themselves as sort of developing beyond sort of like that core Facebook platform. And, and given that it's just basically advertising at this point, that's kind of what makes me a little bit hesitant there. But uh, yeah, Amazon Amazon's a a tough one to go up against too. Well, and to go back to what we talked about with McCormick and Johnson and Johnson, where you have Amazon. A business most consumers know, but behind the scenes, you've got Amazon Web Services, which is quietly becoming a monster. And I don't know if you guys saw this. Bill Mann, portfolio manager at Full Funds, this morning, tweeting out he did a deep dive on their latest quarter. He thinks, as a standalone company, Amazon Web Services could be a sixty billion dollar company. Sure, that's like bigger than the. Next five competitors, something like that. I think his tweets. Yeah, I mean, you have a lot. You have a lot of companies in this space, and certainly Microsoft's most recent quarter, their growth, what they're doing in in cloud services is really impressive. And if they can keep that up, they're going to be nipping at Amazon's heels pretty quickly. But but it seems like one of those spaces that the the uh, the big players are only getting bigger, and it's becoming probably tougher and tougher for pure play. Cloud companies oh, yeah. to compete with the likes of Amazon and Microsoft. Well, look at something like Rackspace. I think there's a good example of a business that's trying to get sort of in that same market, and it's just exponentially smaller and has had such a hard time really making any headway. Because I mean, the one thing that Amazon's notorious for is cutting prices, whether it's you know in in their e-commerce division or in the Amazon Web Services division. I mean, they just they continue to cut prices and. So it's it's almost irresponsible if you don't give them a shot, and then once they're able to get customers in the door, learn more about what their customers really need, and shape their offering towards what their customers really need, and provide them such a low price. I mean, the really the switching costs grow over time. Mm-hmm. There, um, in, in in it becomes a little bit uh, difficult for for any you know certainly small player to come in there and encroach on that market. I mean, the bigger players, Microsoft, Google. Uh, they'll continue to play a role in it, but I think Amazon's one that really has sort of set the pace. And I mean, as long as Jeff Bezos is there, I don't see that changing. I mean, it really, really, I think uh, this is one of those businesses that is going to, as long as he's there, uh, I think you got to feel really good about it. When he's not there, it's, it's who knows. But um, I, I think I think he'll be there for some time to come. So we are six days away from Super Bowl Fifty. Fans are rooting for a good game. Shareholders of CBS are rooting for a good game because they don't want a blowout. Because then CBS is going to have to yeah. do some make goods on the advertising. Sorry, I, CBS. I, 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 well, we'll see. I think I mentioned this uh, last week. I remember watching CNBC the day after the Super Bowl last year. Les Moonves, the head of CBS, was on. He had a grin from ear to ear. He was the happiest. Man in America, because 
Super Bowl 49, great game, goes down to the final minute, ratings through the roof. Nobody was changing the channel. And nobody was yeah. changing the channel. Nobody's turning away from those ads. And Les Moonves said a year ago on the set of CNBC, $5 million for a 30-second ad. That's where the bidding is going to begin for Super Bowl 50. So, he was, he was pretty giddy. I'm rooting for a good game. What's your prediction, Taylor? I know you want your Carolina Panthers pan- to win. <laughs> yeah, I've got the Panthers. They are five and a half point favorites right now. I'll take I'll take the Panthers with the spread, no problem. Jason, I have a hard time. I mean, seeing how Denver wins this game. I mean, I think it's a really cool story to see Peyton Manning. More more than likely, this is his last game. To see him to to make this his last game, I think is really cool, and I think the the uh, you know most. Most fans would love to see him sort of go out on top, but I, I just, man, I tell you, I, Carolina's defense is just as strong as, as Denver's in, in my eyes, and I mean they they have a stronger offense. Mm-hmm. It, I don't even think it's close. So I just would be really, I think Denver would have to really do something special to win this game. It's going to take a safety on the first play of of <laughs> the Panthers' offensive drive to to make that possible. I heard a couple of people make this point about the Denver New England game, and I think. The same probably applies to the Super Bowl in that if it's a close game, then Denver is more likely to win. If it is a blowout game, then Carolina is more likely to blow out Denver. Yeah, I couldn't see Carolina getting blown out, but I mean, I can see a a close game definitely works in Denver's favor. What'll be interesting is, I mean, if it is sort of a blowout of the game, kind of gets out of hand, I mean, we talk all about you know advertising commercials on TV and whatnot, but I think this is obviously a much different landscape than it was even five years ago. Because now, I mean, everybody is looking towards social media for for whatever you know other sort of entertainment outlet there is. And uh, you know, for me, like I feel like the Super Bowl commercials have kind of they've they've sort of lost their luster. They're not quite like they used to be. And I mean, I think I think you see almost more entertaining sort of organic. Postings on social media. What I mean, Twitter I think is very spur of the moment, very good for that. I mean, Facebook obviously is always going to play a big role in it as well. I mean, I don't know. I just feel like you're going to you're going to have the opportunity there on the social media side for those those entities to do very well from this as well. I read an interesting article recently about how Doritos changed the landscape for Super Bowl advertising a few years back when they put the word out and had. Everyday people just film their own Doritos commercial and, <laughs> yeah. and sort of put them out there. And if you think about it, as a shareholder, it's one of those things that that can work. I mean, it seems like every year there are companies that quote unquote win the advertising game, and certainly there are ones that lose. And look, it's five million dollars yeah. for thirty yeah. seconds. So there I, are companies out there that are placing a big bet. So it's one of those things where, hey, look, if we're going to pay up for the time itself, we want to. Do what we can to mitigate costs on the production side, so it makes sense that Doritos would do something like that. Yeah, and I mean, then, it, but it's all you, know, you think about where where are the eyeballs? Where are the people? I mean, I use this as an example because I mean, last night it just blew me away. Like, now, I mean, I, I, I admit I'm, I'm guilty of watching Grease live last night, Chris. Okay, <laughs> but now I have a house full of girls, so I mean, it really. Hey, my daughters were very excited to check it out. That is a classic, and it was good family TV musical comedy. And and it was, yeah, I was a big fan of the original movie, but I, it floored me. To, I mean, there was like a there were like a million tweets on this thing. The whole it's a three hour stretch, and and I mean the entire time, like I was more <laughs> I was more interested in what was going on in Twitter. The jokes, the the one-liners, what people had to say—they're all sorts of people chiming in for every single 
moment of what was going on with that event. And and certainly you've seen Twitter and Facebook play into these live events more and more and more. So I j- I just can't help but feel like that five million dollar spot, you know, thirty second spot, I th- I think is really it's becoming I think a, a bit outdated. I mean I just I just think the eyeballs tend to go other places now. I think there's actually more clever organic advertising uh, that just we're witnessing on social media every day. And, and I'm, I'm certain that marketing executives at a lot of these big brand companies are recognizing that and, and figuring out ways to take advantage of it. Over under on the number of commercials that star a starting quarterback from this game? A starting quarterback? Peyton Manning or Any Cam Newton? Oh, yeah. one of the two? Well, and that's one of the narratives, right? <laughs> well, there's going to have to be a Papa John's one, right? There's got to be Papa John's. <laughs> one, of the, one of the narratives leading up to the Super Bowl is you have Peyton Manning, the consummate Pitchman yep. from sure. the NFL over the last two decades, and Cam Newton—not just a a young star quarterback on the field, but off the field, quite the pitchman yeah, himself. Absolutely. Under Armour is going to be loving this one. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think it's got to be. Uh, what's the over under? I don't know. I three, the four. Line, I'd go five. I think five between Cam between Newton and both Peyton Manning. Yeah. Five distinct commercials. Yep. All right. Yeah, I'd go I under we'll five. You'd go under five. Back yeah. to Greece Live for one second. What was the best musical number? Oh man! It had to have been Grease Lightning, isn't that well, the be- that's the best see, one from the, the original? There, it, it maybe, but the problem there is you got to kind of alter the language, you know, because it has to be family friendly. Oh there. yeah. So it kind of took away a little bit from uh, took took a little bit away from that. I mean, it's hard to really pinpoint one. I just I think to me, I, you know, you see see something so difficult a logistical uh, feat as that, and they, and they really pulled it off. I. I I was very impressed, you know. I mean, having having seen a Broadway show and appreciating the live nature of things like that, I think that what they did last night was very impressive, and uh, I doff my cap to Th- them. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Fooler. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 